Welcome to church. This is the uh, this is the week after Easter celebration that we are going beyond just Easter Christians. So you made it. Great congratulations, and uh, it was an amazing celebration. But um, and if you're watching online, you couldn't make it. Grace to you, and it's not any judgment against you. But we have an interesting passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning. Um, it's one of those scriptures, maybe as you read the Bible, you're a new Bible student, or you just, it's your, you're taking another lap around the Bible, and you get to one of those stories that's just like, this is in the Bible? I think sometimes we, we reduce the Bible to these really simple all-star versions of the, the one stories that are really impactful or make really great quotes, uh, but there's some really strange stories in the Bible. There's some moments in the Bible that you look at and you really have to ask questions and notice things and, and try to figure out what the word is saying to us. Um, you know, classically, God speaks through a donkey to someone at some point. And uh, I, I find great comfort in that, that he can speak through donkeys. Uh, he um, used all sorts of ways to, uh, in, in object lessons, the prophets would often do things that just make you pause and say, what is all all about? And this morning, we're going to look at a story that I think in more ways than one, we should be like, what is the Bible trying to say to us right now? So I hope we all put our Bible student hats on as we study this. So that's interesting for one reason. And then the other reason it's interesting is that we are actually reversing our timeline of the narrative of Jesus. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we studied the last week in the life of Jesus, Holy Week or Passion Week, and, and we celebrated the resurrection or the empty tomb, which is really the mostly the end of the story of the Gospels. But we are going to continue our unfinished study through Mark, which means we're going to go back to Holy Week slightly. And so if you have your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 11, and we're picking up where we left off two Sundays ago. So this is the continued story, the day after Palm Sunday. So two Sundays ago, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Jesus has ridden into town on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that, uh, behold, your king is coming to you lowly, riding on a donkey. He's been given the praise of the people, uh, the messianic psalm, Hosanna, come to save us, and they wave palm branches at him. And we left off with Jesus examining all of their praise. He marches into the temple, looks around, goes back to Bethany where he was staying, and takes a, a, uh, takes a break. And then the story resumes with some really, really interesting and important spiritual implications. So it starts in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says this, now the next day, the day after Palm Sunday, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So Jesus is waking up hungry. I have to say, I don't know how often I'll have that post-Israel uh, recollection and just things that remind me of, but Israel's got amazing figs. I didn't expect that. Uh, but Jesus wakes up and he's, he sees a fig tree. It's probably a wild fig tree. He notices it from afar. It's got leaves. So he approaches it and he, you can imagine him examining the tree, looking for something to where he could satisfy his hunger. He noticed that it's nothing but leaves, no fruit. And so as he notices this, 
He responds, and Jesus says to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. So Jesus is going to, in this small passage of scripture, show both his humanity and his divinity. His humanity in that he is hungry, and he liked some food. He had a long day yesterday, and he's got a big mission today. And also, he is going to show his ability to work miracles, even miracles in some ways of destruction or cursing, because he's about to curse this fig tree, and his disciples overhear him. Now, before we look into why this is happening, this is going to unfold into what is classically called a Mark sandwich where Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and we've studied some of these in the past, to really study the Gospel of Mark, you have to be ready for these ways that he teaches us by giving us a story, and rather than giving us commentary or explaining the story to us, he gives us immediately another story that ties into it, and then he finishes it by going back to the original story. So there's your bread, meat, bread, or if you're a vegetarian, your bread, cheese, brie, bread. So it's whatever your desire is. But we're going to get to the middle part of the story. So let's continue to go through the narrative and just observe what is happening. And then we'll come back and say, why was it happening? And then we'll end by saying, now, what does this actually mean to us? And so in verse 13, or excuse me, in verse 15, it says, so then. He's, he's cursed the fig tree for not satisfying his hunger with fruit. And in verse 15, it says, So they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished, astonished at his teaching. Now, as we go through the narrative, we can do some noticing right away, Jesus last night or at the end of Palm Sunday observes what was happening in the temple. He goes back to Bethany, he sleeps, passes a fig tree and curses it, and now he walks into the temple and after making observation and resting, he is going to take action against what he is decrying against the temple. It has totally lost its purpose. He's quoting old prophets by saying the original design, God's heart for his house, his temple, was to be a place of prayer for everyone. And Jesus walks in and he sees that instead of it being a place of prayer, a place where people can come and experience the presence of God or seek God, make offerings to God, make right with their life before God, he notices that it's more appropriately called a den of thieves. And he chases out those both buying and selling. And as we're noticing this, we can take some commentary just for the person of Jesus. And this is maybe the moment where we are noticing a story that's a bit strange. I remember when we decided to start the Gospel of Mark, I'd met with a number of different pastors who would be teaching through it with me through from the junior high and the high school and and one of the responses was you know I went through it with uh, my leadership team and one of my leaders says I love reading the gospels or I love getting to know Jesus more because he is just so nice 
And I think that is a reputation that we appreciate about Jesus. We've studied the Gospels, and in so many ways, he has extended grace and mercy. He has touched the untouchable. He has loved the unlovable. He has restored those who were outside of the community and brought them in through healing. And he should rightfully have the reputation of kindness. But this is the kind of story that can confuse someone who wants to put Jesus into a category that is simply meek, mild, and kind always. And I think as we make our noticing and we start to think about what this means for us as Jesus followers, as we begin to answer this question, it's important that we allow Jesus to reveal himself as he does, lest we try to follow someone in becoming more like him that we don't have a real good understanding of. Lest we think that when life presents itself with opportunities that require courage or boldness or rebuke, or to even run out evil as we see it, when we claim to be Jesus followers and we put him only in a category of kindness and nice and meek and mild, there may be a tendency to promote a culture of passivity or to go through life where evil surrounds or in the fallen world we notice things that are happening that are not good and we think, well, as a Jesus follower, we really shouldn't do anything but wait. This is a story that will challenge that. And I also appreciate that this is a story that will also challenge anyone who wants to follow Jesus with a whip of anger. So we've got two categories of people that probably need to study this story. Those who have a tendency to be passive and those who uh, love the meme of Jesus in a whip chasing people away. And you say, hey, Jesus had a whip. I'm going to have one too. Uh, I've already pointed out and I'll mention it again. This was not a random fit of anger that Jesus was experiencing. Jesus has just gotten a good night of rest. Jesus was thinking about this after observing it from the night before. In the Gospel of John, it actually says he fashioned a whip, if you can believe that. It's hard to imagine Jesus using all of his powers to braid together a whip, but the Gospel of John says he was actually cracking a whip in this moment. So that's something we're noticing as we go through this. And then it says... The scribes and the chief priests heard it, verse 18, sought how they might destroy him. The popularity of Jesus is growing. This is not something that it seems the public were against. It seems as though that whatever Jesus was doing, it was not against the will of the people. It was not the time to arrest him right here. In fact, he'll go on to return to the temple and continue to teach, and the crowds will continue to listen to him. But we're beginning the momentum that would turn into the scribes and the Pharisees plotting their final plan to murder him. And this is where it says they plotted and looked for a way to kill him or destroy him because they feared him. But the people were astonished at his teaching. And so now in verse 19, it says, when evening had come, he went out of the city, presumably back to Bethany. And now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the roots of the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering what had happened, said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So here are our layers. A fig tree is cursed. A temple is cleansed. And a disciple notices what has happened, that what Jesus said about the fig tree actually from the root up happened. And so we've done our observing. We've, we've walked through the narrative. Now let's ask the question, not just what happened, but why does this happen? 
what is Jesus doing with these stories and why does Mark put them together? So we go back to the fig tree. Jesus has noticed the fig tree. It says that he was hungry. But because we've already noticed this is deeply connected to what he's about to do in the temple, it is safe to say that this is not just a story about Jesus being hungry and then annoyed. This is not a hangry moment. As though Jesus was hungry and he looked in the pantry and he's so annoyed, he said, let ever, whoever's overseeing this pantry, let him be cursed. I'm just I'm so hungry. Instead, we find what is classically used through the device of prophecy, which is a visible object lesson for something God is about to do. This is an object lesson used throughout the prophetic writings and God's call on the prophets. So we have to remember that Jesus is not just a rabbi and a miracle worker. He is, in fact, a prophet. He is, in fact, the, the, the one who now God only speaks through. He has the voice of God. And a couple prophet object lessons just to remind you of, to, to, to paint this picture. You'll remember Jeremiah. Jeremiah living in a time where uh, the, the nation had become corrupt and he was calling people to repentance. He lived in a time where the temple was, all, was being used in all sorts of wrong ways. And God called him to literally wear a yoke around town. He was supposed to wear a yoke as an object lesson. So imagine a prophet walking around with the yoke of an ox on his shoulders, and it represented the yoke of Babylon that the people of Israel would have to wear after they were carried away into captivity. So rather than just saying what was about to happen to the people, Jeremiah put a yoke on and said, look at this yoke. Pay attention to what's happening to me. This is what Babylon is going to do to you. And then we think of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 20. This one is, um, this one is, is a little more graphic. Uh, God actually has him <laughs> stripped down. Now, some commentators, to make it more digestible, say he strips down to his, you know, just to his underwear, basically. But he's, he's called to take off his, his outer garment. He's called to take off his shoes. And he's called to walk around naked for three years. Because at that time, the people were fearing the incoming Assyrian danger that they were going to be overtaken. They said, let us look to Egypt. Maybe Egypt. We can make an alliance with Egypt and they can help us. And, and Isaiah said, look, I'm naked. This is how the Egyptians will be taken away. You will watch them be taken away just as I am stripped down and shamed. So that will they. Why do you trust anyone other than Yahweh? Object lessons. And so now we have... A fig tree. And this is actually something that Jesus is going to draw from a symbolic picture that God uses often when relating to his people. In the Old Testament specifically, God relates to his people through vineyards and plants. And you can imagine. It's like God gives life and he looks at the vineyard as a way to to show whether or not something is being well cared for or growing and bearing fruit. And he says this is God's relationship to the life that he gives to his people. So I'm going to try to read this fairly quickly, but I think it's so beautiful that I want to share with you, and you can turn there if you want to read along, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah actually shares a symbol of the way God is relating to his nation through the picture of a vineyard. 
A beautiful picture. He says in verse 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. So we've got a vine dresser. He's got a fruitful little hill. He's clearing out all the rocks and stones, and he's going to plant a vineyard for his beloved. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done it? Why then, I expected it to bring forth good grapes. Did it bring forth wild grapes? He was a good vine dresser. He was motivated by love. He found a fruitful hill and he did everything he needed to do. He put a tower and a wine press. He said, what more could I have done? And yet, instead of having a beautiful vineyard, he's basically got a jungle. And so he says this, and now please, tell, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll take it away to its hedge and it shall be burned. And, and break it down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. And I will command clouds that it, rain, that it not rain on it. He says, I did everything I could so that this vineyard would bear fruit, but it turned wild. And he said, so I will let it go. Which is fair enough. If you invested your time and money and energy... Motivated by love and care to grow a vineyard and it didn't work? Eventually, all among you would rightfully say, this isn't working. I'm going to let it be. And here's the key to the symbolism. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And I love that phrase that when we get the symbolism for God and his people, it says that he's examining his people. He's looking for righteousness and justice. He's examining it. And what does he find? He finds oppression and a cry for help. And now we get a better picture of what Jesus is doing in the object lesson. He's examining the fig tree. And in examining the fig tree, what does he find? He doesn't find fruit. It says famously, but he found only leaves. Jesus is using the picture that God uses for his people and the examination that he makes of them. He's now with his disciples in earshot, giving them an object lesson. He examines the fig tree. He sees that it's nothing but leaves and he says, then this tree is now good for nothing. Here's how David Gusick explains the curse with leaves but no fruit. Essentially, the tree was a picture of false advertising. Having leaves but no figs. Ordinarily, this is not the case with these fig trees, which normally do, ha do not have leaves without also having figs. This tree was cursed because... It professed to have fruit, but it did not. 
And now we take a somewhat confusing moment in a walk that Jesus is having with his disciples, and it becomes crystal clear. Jesus has examined this fig tree, and it found the fig tree to present itself as fruitful. And upon further examination, it actually had nothing to show for the life of the leaves that it was presenting. And so now with that picture in mind, Jesus will go from an object lesson to an actual practical moment where God is examining his people. In the same way he examined the fig tree, he examined the temple the night before. He looked around. And in the same way he saw that the fig tree had only leaves, he now looks and he sees his people in the temple displaying righteousness. They're going through all of the proper acts of a life-giving plant that God had given, that God had planted into the world to give life to the nations. And yet, when he looks around, a closer examination is that the people were actually being ripped off. I can't help but think of the timeline of this. If we were teaching in one continuous moment, we would have just remembered that the people were literally waving leaves. They were taking branches and killing branches to anoint him king, calling him Hosanna, displaying outwardly a devotion to him as king. And in some ways, the same thing was happening in the temple. They were offering sacrifices. But upon further examination, what was actually happening? The call and the mission for these people to be God's life-giving plant to all nations had actually used this position to profit and to make money. What was happening is on the Temple Mount, there is the Holy of Holies, and then there's the outer courts. There's actually a place called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is where Jesus was observing these money changers and all of the pilgrims that were coming during Passover week to make their offerings, had to exchange whatever currency they were coming with for the currency of the temple, the shekel, and they were getting ripped off in the exchange rate. And then they had to buy the temple wares or the the temple-approved animal sacrifices. And in doing so, they were upcharging the people. And they were also had to have their animals examined before they could make the sacrifice. And they were looking for any flaw they could find in the, in the animals that were being brought before them so they could upcharge them more and more and more. And the temple that was supposed to be a place of prayer had become a place of personal prosperity. A temple that looked so full of worship of God. Imagine what they were doing. They were offering sacrifices, shedding the blood of animals. People coming to remember the goodness of God through the Passover, pilgrims everywhere. It's hard to understate how much activity was happening in this temple. And Jesus looks at all of it and he sees no fruit, all leaves. In 
And it is the beginning of this cleansing. Just as Jeremiah was prophesying that the Babylonians would come, Jeremiah was the first one to use the den of thieves language about the temple, and the temple would be torn down and destroyed. So too, Jesus is now giving an object lesson that is a prophetic view of a destruction of this temple that would come in 70 AD. The temple would be destroyed. And so we look at this and we're saying, what happened and why it happened? There is within the temple an ongoing lesson where people try to offer some sort of sacrifice and worship to God, and then over time the nation becomes corrupt, and the temple becomes the center of the corruption. And the temple is torn down. And God gives his people over to their false idols and their false worship, and then the whole cycle would start again. And now Jesus is going to give an answer as to what this means for us as he explains to his disciples. It says in verse 20, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the, the fig tree dried up from the roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Peter says, you, you cursed a fig tree. No doubt Peter saw him cleanse a temple. And now Peter walked by the same fig tree, and it says, from the roots up. From the roots, the fig tree reveals that it is no longer ever going to bear fruit. And this is one of the first ways that we can start to examine this for our own lives Mark does not mince words. It matters that he says from the roots up. If you want to know the health of a nation or the health of a people or the health of a church, you examine the temple of worship. The health of a nation is not determined by the economy. It is not determined by the strength of the borders. It is not determined by the prosperity of the people. We have throughout our nation had all of those things in harmony and still been rotten to our core because the health of anything or anyone is found in the temple of worship. You get the right object of worship if you can cleanse your heart and your mind and find the house of prayer to truly worship God. And you will be a healthy people. And yet, you get worship wrong. You put anything else in the center of the temple. You put a priority to make money. You put a priority to honor all of the other gods. You put a priority of sex. If you want to diagnose why a people, a country, a church has gone wrong, it is because they have lost the heart of worship. They have found a way to use the temple wrongly. They have become all leaves 
and no fruit. Still singing songs, still making sacrifices, still offering tithe, still going to attendance. And yet at the core, if the house of the Lord, if the center of worship is not to seek and glorify God, there will be, in fact, no fruit. It is from the roots up. And so we'll find three things this means for us. One, this is a judgment passage. This is a passage where a fig tree has been judged, a temple has been judged, and through the temple, an entire nation has been judged. And as I think about the times that we live in, of course, there is a historicity to this story, but there is also a correction in the way that we call upon the name of the Lord for our lives. You've probably heard that the expectation of the Jewish people of the day was for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem and cleanse them of the Romans. Judge the Romans. <laughs> Judge their evil oppression against God's people. And yet, what actually happens? God does not judge the Gentiles to serve his people. He judges his people to serve the Gentiles. And I have to say, sometimes it feels like we need a proper readjusting in the way we are asking God to cleanse our world. Because there are all sorts of ways that there are Gentiles or non-believers that need to be judged. If you read the news and you think about all of the corruption of government and money and Wall Street and pharma, and we just think, Lord... We give them over to you. And yet, as God sends his son into the world to open up a narrow gate of salvation, he starts with his people. This is what Peter says. First Peter chapter 4. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And it begins with us first. What will be the end of these that do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if God begins by cleansing his house and judges us, how much more will he care for or judge the world? But in so many ways, what we need time and time and time again is to read a passage like this and say, Lord, open my heart, open my mind, cleanse my life. 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You've been bought with a price. We just celebrated Good Friday. You are God's special people. He sent his son as the new Passover lamb. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will take away your sins. And the blood was paid. He bought you with a price when he sent his son to die on the cross and rose again. And we celebrated and we said, you're the king. We are your subjects. You own us. Welcome to your temple, Lord. 
For those of you who celebrate the resurrection with the joy of salvation, knowing that the same spirit that rose Christ from the grave is in you, you're the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in your hearts and your minds. And we read this passage of scripture as a reminder that he has called us to be representations to the nations that the king is alive, that God is good, that God is love. The second way that we can find some answers for this in our own lives, we're going to continue to read, to go beyond what we've already read. It says in verse 22, as Jesus is exchanging with Peter. Peter says, look, the fig tree got cursed. Verse 22, so Jesus answered and said to him, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Now, this is another passage of scripture. You have to say, wait a second, Jesus, because that seems like you just gave us a blank check. As I was studying this for the first time in studying this passage of scripture, I realized how important it is to understand where this passage of scripture is placed. Because if you've been around Christianity at all, you may have heard this exhortation in prayer from Jesus be given in some sort of prosperity manner. That if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. And if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. Remember what we just talked about. Jesus is literally saying this after he fashioned a whip and chased people out of the temple and called them a den of thieves. And somehow, prosperity preachers have hijacked this passage of scripture and removed it from the whip. And they've removed it from what just happened is he chased away people who were trying to prosper off the temple. So certainly this is not a blank check to give you whatever you want. What this is, is Jesus restoring the initial design for God and his people. He said, my house will be what? A house of prayer. So even in the, on the foot of a corrupted temple, where people are charging for prayer and sacrifice and offerings, Jesus looks up and says, this temple or this mountain can be moved. And you can be in such communion with God that you know how to pray. And you will see your faith in God. Not your faith in temple. Not your faith in the sacrifice of animals. Not your faith in a holy mountain. Not your faith in the, the proper kosher offering. But have faith in God. That every single one of you who truly believes in God and communes with him in prayer will have an effective prayer life. Jesus is removing the temple corruption. And he's taking Peter and his disciples to the foot of prayer between them and God. And this is the great gospel good news for us this morning. That we, in the midst of corruption, in the midst of corrupted churches and den of thieves that still exist in our day, in the midst of people using scripture and, and trying to line their pockets, Jesus says, 
believe in God. Because in communion through prayer with God, you will know how to pray in an effective and powerful way. There will be no monopoly on prayer. There will be no monopoly on the way that you can see God move in your life. Jesus will go on to say in the upper room, another encouragement to his disciples to help them understand the plant and the people metaphor in John 15. He says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered away. Welcome to the new picture, the new symbol. Now we are the people. Jesus is the vine. We are the branch. And the fruitlessness of of us in the new covenant is just as dangerous. But he says, abide in my word and you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And here is the key. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. When you become a person of prayer and the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, the temple of God, God is glorified and that will filter all of your prayers. Does this glorify God? Is my Father in heaven glorified by my life? So we have judgment and we have prayer. And we have one final way that this applies to us. Jesus will go on to say, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. What does this verse mean? I think it means what it says. You're forgiven. If you have experienced the abundance of God's grace and the power of forgiveness, your natural fruit-bearing response will be a, to be a forgiving person. But what does it have to do in the footprint of our story today? Again, in the corruption of the temple, in the messiness of people being part of God's plan, there is no monopoly on forgiveness. If you're forgiven by God, you now must forgive. It does not require a dove, a lamb, a ram, a sheep, a goat, a temple. Forgiveness has been unlocked by the power of the cross. And I can confidently say that because of what we just celebrated last week. The first message that Jesus has to his disciples is a reminder of what he taught them right outside of Bethany when he talked about forgiveness. In the upper room, he's resurrected. John chapter 20, and Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And we had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Forgiveness belongs to the cross. Forgiveness has been won nothing but the blood of Jesus. If anyone tries to make you exchange your money or buy a certain power of forgiveness through 
a channel of church or temple rituals or anything other than the cross of Christ, they are a den of thieves. Forgiveness flows into your life freely from the cross and out of your life freely by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the fruit that we must bear, lest we be nothing but leaves. So we're going to take communion. <laughs> and we're re reminded of these three things, of what this means for our lives. Lord, judge our hearts. Lest we be doing all of these things, that the outside world would look in to the windows of a church and see nothing but leaves. There's no fruit. It stays in the sanctuary on Sunday. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. You have been called to be a house of prayer. Commune with God. Find your secret place. Learn the power of the promise of Jesus that when you ask anything in his names, in his name that will bring glory to the Father, God will give you an effective and powerful prayer life. And bear the fruit of forgiveness. There is no monopoly on the love of God. We have been forgiven of much. We must forgive much. And in doing so, we will bear fruit. And in doing so, we will be a house of prayer, an invitation to the nations. That our God is a living God. Our God is powerful to save. Our God is a God who responds to the cry of his people. And our God has unlocked the key to forgiveness of sins through the power of the cross.